Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Greetings from the Oregon coast. Angie and I are taking a short trip up to Portland from San Francisco. We've seen a lot of cool stuff. I've had my mind blown by massive redwoods and have been impressed by the beauty of the Oregon coast, an area I didn't really know much about. We're headed to the World Domination Summit, a cool conference put on by Chris Gilbo. And it's a place that's pretty special. I went there in 2018 at the urging of my friend Stephen Worley. He said, you have to go. You'll find your people. He was right. One of those people was Johnny Miller, who ended up giving me a David White book, The Three Marriages, that inspired my thinking, my path, and eventually my book. Enough about me. Let's dive into the podcast today. We have Lauren Radzavi, who recently wrote a book, Digital Natives about digital nomads. It's a really fun combo. We chat about her writing process, the long history of nomadism, and what the future of travel and work looks like. I think it will surprise you and interest you. Hope you enjoy it. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned dollars. Go to joincrowdhealth.com now and experience freedom from health insurance. Right now, you can get your first three months for just $99 per month. That's almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high-deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com and use promo code BOUNDLESS at sign up. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code BOUNDLESS. Mandatory disclaimer, CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I'm talking with Lauren Rizavi. She's a writer, speaker, and strategist. She is also someone who's been nomadic and exploring similar life paths as me for the last many years. Um, She's currently working with uh, Safety Wing and Plumia. Um, helping to build an internet country for digital nomads. We won't really be exploring that today, but uh, she's talked and written a lot about that in other places, which I will link up to. What I really am excited to talk to you today, Lauren, about is your book, Global Natives. I think you wrote a really interesting book. I finished it last week around the history of What is, how does this current digital nomad movement, remote work, how does this fit into the historical um, trends that have been happening basically like forever? Like humans have always been nomadic. 
and what does it mean uh, for the future? And, and then also, I, I like how you were trying to be thoughtful about like, okay, how can we be pragmatic about this, like at the policy country and how we're thinking about this at the human level. So welcome to the pathless path, Lauren. Thank you. I am so psyched to be here. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So let's get nerdy um, about uh digital nomad history and paths, but I'd love to first start with your history. Um, so talk to me a little bit about some of your influences you grew up, maybe some of the like ideas about work that you grew up with and like how that sort of influenced you as you were coming of age. So I guess the first thing to say is that I come from a super multicultural family. Um, my dad is a refugee from Iran to the UK, um, and he's also the youngest of eight children, all of whom fled Iran around the same time. So when I was growing up, I had a really interesting mix of ideas and kind of cultures, and I guess values kind of coming at me from all directions. So all of our family vacations growing up were to visit members of our family in other countries. And when we got there, it wasn't kind of visiting Germany and only seeing Germany. It was visiting Germany and kind of seeing this pocket of the Iranian diaspora within Germany, as well as the country itself. Um, and I think this was super, super influential, um, perhaps not so much directly about the work part, but about the kind of vision of what my life could be. So my cousins are sort of based all over the world. And I ended up like building these really strong relationships with them, even though we'd only see each other every sort of year or two. Um, and just sort of having this real uh, global identity and, and not seeing borders as a reason that you wouldn't be connected with other people as, as friends or family. Um, and so when it came to work, um, after I graduated from university, um, I became a travel writer for a while, and that was all quite by accident. I started writing during university and did quite well at that with the sort of UK newspapers and magazines. Um, and so I just kind of went with the flow, I guess, of what I was doing um, and who I felt I was. I think that with the gift of hindsight, when I look back on all the decisions that I've made now... Uh, they all just kind of make sense, uh, the context that I come from, this kind of multicultural family, these different cultural influences. Um, I think specifically around work, there's probably um, an interesting insight in that my dad, before he moved to the UK, spent some time in California. And I think I've always detected in him a huge, like, American dream kind of energy, i.e. you can make a path for yourself, like you can be entrepreneurial, you can do stuff against the odds. Um, and I think that's been super, super valuable. I have always considered myself to be in a much more privileged position than my parents were. Um, and for that reason, have always really tried to create my own path, I guess, when it comes to work. Um, I'm really seeing work and life as very much the, the sort of a uh, synthesis uh, of who I am as, as a person and making sure both of those worlds are feeding into one another. Being around a lot of people that were sort of forced to be nomadic uh, by necessity, right? Survival. Um, how did you come to see place and like home? Like what is, what did home mean to you or how did you think about that growing up? So I grew up um, mostly in the UK, but a little bit in the US as well. 
Um, I moved around quite a bit in the UK. Um, and so in general, I think that the idea of home for me was always kind of in flux. Um, so moving around a lot, kind of going to different schools and then also kind of seeing family elsewhere. It just, uh, everything was always very changing. I think that my kind of conception of home, and this is something that people ask nomads all the time, you know, what does it mean? Where is your home? Like, what, what does it mean to kind of have a home? I think mine is so much more about people than place. Um, and maybe I think one of the, one of the really important things to me is that I, I have that sense of home and routine, but that is actually quite separate from the place that I am physically. Um, I find that I have a different sense of home and a different sense of routine uh, in the different places that I spend time. Uh, and I, I understand from my friends who, you know, maybe I know from university and didn't go in this sort of international direction with their lives, that home is a much more kind of stable concept for them. Um, and perhaps a little bit less oriented on people, actually, and a bit more oriented on literally like, this is my hometown, or this is the country that I come from. But I also think there are loads of weirdos like me, these kind of global <laughs> citizens. Um, and that one of the things I mentioned in the book, uh, I think only in passing, but I found it really interesting is, if you look at the last 50 years, the kind of data, uh, there are more people with multiple nationalities, passport citizenships uh, than ever before. And people are much more likely to have uh, a sort of background that comes from multiple nations rather than just one. So this is like a quite a big kind of global trend and countries have also been, um, it used to be like very restricted to be able to take on another passport or another citizenship. But actually over the last 50 years, countries have really kind of come around to that idea and, and sort of allowed it. Yeah, it's it's something I think about a lot. I mean, my uh, wife is from Taiwan and what I've seen other couples do from two different countries is they sort of like sometimes will just opt into one of or the other's default paths of that country. Um, and we sort of wanted more options, right, to spend deeper time with both sides of the family, which sort of forces different ways of thinking about home, place, travel, work, um, and hence like a lot of what I'm doing. But um, yeah, there's so, and when you're in a relationship like this, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, I know you're in a similar situation, but um, there's so many immigrants like all over the world, even first generation, second generation, people with relatives living in different countries. Um, it's really an interesting challenge because we're so anchored to nation states. Um, and maybe this is a good um, segue to start talking about um, some of the book. I, I definitely want to um, dive into some of your journey of like how you got to become a digital nomad. Um, but yeah, maybe give us a little reference of like, what changed about the world and like how we see place? I think fundamentally what's changed uh, is the internet. So the internet has really um, accelerated globalization and particularly since the pandemic when remote work went mainstream, we sort of find ourselves in this situation where if you look around, 
you're like, okay, so like finance and like retail and all these different things have kind of been digitally transformed and like upgraded for the internet era. But actually so much of what it is to be a citizen, what it is to move around the world um, uh, and what it is to, to kind of be attached to a nation state has just not at all digitally transformed. It's been very, very slow. Um, and there are outlier countries that are more digitally transformed than others. But to my mind, the issue is less about individual countries digitally transforming and more about the need to create a kind of global layer so that actually people can have not only an identity and kind of culture, which I think is, is there already, but actually to have the services of citizenship uh, available to them at that internet level, that kind of global layer, um, which is what I'm really trying to build in my work and what I really kind of identified as the thing that I wanted to build and the problems that I wanted to work on through the process of writing this book. I think I went in with quite a journalistic lens uh, before, like, as I started writing of like, okay, so what are the problems? But I've always, when I was a journalist, I was part of this movement called Solutions Journalism, which is all about interrogating solutions uh, just as robustly as you'd interrogate problems. It's kind of part of this movement to try and make the news less like doomsday all the time. But I really kind of took that approach. So the book was about kind of articulating the problems, but also really trying to articulate the direction, at least, of what some of the solutions could be. Uh, and when I was writing it, I didn't quite expect to then end up, before even it had been published, in a job, in fact, working to build those solutions. Um, so, yeah, write books, listeners. Uh, you never know what direction <laughs> it will lead you in. <laughs> yeah, so let, let's use that as a segue to talk about how you ended up living this kind of life. So you started as a travel writer after university, um, it sounds like you were sort of just moving to different places on your own because that's just what you did. Um, and then you had this assignment where you wanted to go cover uh, digital nomads. Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, so... Um, I was pretty much funding my way through grad school as a travel writer. Um, and uh, basically that meant that when I wasn't studying uh, during like semester time at university, I was traveling like while I was doing grad school. Um, and so I did a lot of travel writing. I won some awards. It all went very, very well. But at some point I kind of got bored of telling people where to go on vacation. You know, not all travel writing yeah. is like that, but nonetheless, that's kind of like the, I guess the business model behind it, right? Um, uh, you can make amazing kind of like travel literature and travel writing, but actually if you want to make your full-time living in that space, you really have to have an enthusiasm for telling people where to go and sort of only spend a week somewhere. And I realized right. that what I was more interested in was kind of what was going on in the world and like ideas and culture and in particular like solutions, like problems that had been solved in one country and like why wasn't the rest of the world also sort of adopting that solution. And so that kind of sent me in this other direction, uh, which was foreign reporting. And as a foreign reporter, I specialized in business and technology writing. I also had like a sort of urban innovation column for a while. But one of the stories that I worked on, um, it was something that I, I sort of discovered on the internet was co-working retreats. So this is like right. spring 2015. Um, 
Most people have not really heard of digital nomads. Remote work is this weird fringe thing that some people do. And there are far fewer images on social media of people sort of with their laptops on the beach or whatever. And so in that context, I went out to Bali in Indonesia to profile this startup called Hacker Paradise. And what they were doing is basically organizing trips of at least 30 days, sometimes up to 90 days in different countries so that digital nomads, I didn't know they were called that then, but digital nomads were able to kind of travel in community and perhaps feel a little bit more grounded um, and sort of provided for on the ground. So I went and reported this story. There was extreme skepticism from my Guardian editor. Like, I just remember this conversation where she was like, yeah, but come on, this is just some fad. Like, no one wants to go work in paradise from a laptop. Like, come on, people don't do that. Like, and it was very much like, yeah, go and cover it. But we fully expect you to come back and tell us that it's all bullshit. Uh, Well, I think the leading edge of it was like yoga people, right? I think they were some of the earliest mavens that were like visually doing it because Instagram was really taking off and like those images were really powerful. Um, yeah. And yeah. So tell me, tell me about, um, going to Bali. So I arrived, I arrived there first time in Bali. Um, and essentially spent, uh, I think it was about a month, maybe a little bit more with this group, Hacker Paradise. Um, And I actually made friends who are still like some of my closest friends to this day, including one of the founders, um, a guy called Casey Rosengren. Um, And I covered the story, the story got published, uh, and the editor was sort of proven wrong. But it was through this experience and this particular story that I discovered the term digital nomads, because this is what Hacker Paradise called themselves and people who were kind of coming together um, to work from Bali and then later Chiang Mai and Costa Rica and other places. Um, And so I guess you could say that I was living and working as a digital nomad for a couple of years um, without really knowing that that is what you would call it, that there was kind of a group of people doing this, that it was a movement. But since discovering that, I have, I suppose, felt a lot more validated about it. And just really, I think it was the the motivation that I needed to just be like, it's okay to live my life like this. Yes, it's not like the traditional path. And that's actually great. And actually, there are other people doing it. And I want to learn from these people because they're kind of like singing from the same hymn sheet as I am. Yeah, it's, I had an interesting and similar experience in Bali. I visited for the first time after going to a wedding in Malaysia and friends had rented like a villa to like party for a few days. Um, I stayed a little longer and explored Asia. This is the first time I had really spent extended time while working. It was my first year being self-employed and I decided to go to Ubud and I stayed at Rome, I think that Rome co-working and like, I remember having this tension and this judgment towards this, like, like idea of like digital nomad and co-living. And I now realize like, that is like just this default response that like I absorbed in like places like New York which is like, these people are just like lazy. They're like, not like they're trying to like save money. And I mean, there's elements of that, but then the people I actually met at that co-living house, they were like super thoughtful, so friendly, 
super curious about me and like wanting to know like why I was there and like wanting to help me. And I made a couple friends I've still stepped and kept in touch with. And it sort of just changed my perspective on everything. And in that trip too, is when I decided I was going to come back to Asia. Um, but yeah, it, it's, a, there's this still weird disconnect between like reality on the ground, which is like what people are at, the benefits are actually can only be experienced on ground versus like what people think it's about, right? Even I did a review of Tim Ferriss's book and like people think it's about working less, but like the philosophical undertones of that entire book are like basically just like ask deeper questions about what you really want in life. <laughs> um, so th that was so powerful for me. It sounds like it was similar, similarly powerful when you went to Bali. Mm, definitely. And I actually want to pick up on, um, I guess, something you said there and also the link into Tim Ferriss, because I think it's really interesting. I write in the book um, about Tim Ferriss's kind of role in kickstarting the nomad movement. And one of the most interesting kind of takeaways from that, I think, is that he kind of birthed the self-experimentation genre, right? And yes. blogging and YouTube and podcast, whatever. It, it kind of has become this really big movement now. But what I think is really interesting about that is that because a lot of early nomads did read the four hour work week and they were inspired by that kind of reading of the world, if you like, um, they're very, very reflective. Like nomads are kind of self-experimenters in uh, quite a unique way because screwing around with global borders uh, in the 2010s, I think, is a somewhat kind of bold decision as in it's this very like uncharted territory. You're living in a gray area and it can sometimes be fairly anxiety inducing. Um, but I think you definitely make mistakes along the way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hard, hard won lessons, hard earned lessons yeah, right there. Um, but yeah, I think this kind of self-experimentation uh, is probably what leads to a lot of nomads you kind of meet out in the wild being extremely thoughtful, reflective people because they kind of come across an idea and they're like, okay, I'm going to try this out on myself. You know, one of the sort of micro trends that I've noticed amongst my nomad friends is it's like they're always trying like new forms of exercise or new ways of eating and, and sort of all these different new ways of living. And I think that's really kind of sparked something special in the movement. Like people are yeah. very experimental um, and are th sort of thinking more creatively, not only about their work, but about their whole lives. Yeah, the biggest benefit for me being in those communities, and I think Austin is actually an interesting example of one that's emerging in the U.S. right now, um, is just being around people that are fascinated about ideas about how to live life. So, like, I think people project beliefs onto people like me and you, and they say, like, well, you just think everyone should work remotely or, like, travel the world. And it's like, no, like how I really think about this is I start with the assumption that I'm totally wrong about everything <laughs> and that there's probably interesting ideas and things I could try. And then like, maybe I can get to a better place, but also maybe not. <laughs> is that how you've thought about it as you've uh, traveled to many different places over the last seven years? I guess so. Like, I think, I think it's, uh, it's so different depending on where you go, but also what you're going through in your life, right? So yeah. for me, 
I think when I first started traveling, it was really interesting. It's interesting to reflect on that now because I don't think I had any idea like what I was trying to achieve by traveling. Whereas if I look at the kind of progression of, of my travels over the years, I've really been able to, I guess, like match different places with different problems that I'm looking to explore in my own life or, or sort of different um maybe work challenges that I want to deal with. Um, I really noticed this in people who've been living this way a long time now. Uh, it's like you kind of talk to them and it's not just like, oh yeah, you know, I'm going to Malaysia for three months. It's I'm going to Malaysia for three months because X, Y, and Z has happened. And I've identified like really specifically what I need is whatever it might be. Great, great street food and like a pool in my building or whatever it might be. But this kind of, um, I guess it's optimizing and it's knowing what you're optimizing for. I think that's a really interesting kind of um, feature of people thinking uh, more outside the box with their, with their lives. It's like sometimes yeah. those people that you referred to uh, of kind of not, you know, kind of like maybe projecting views onto you. I think so much of that is to do with, um, not kind of, yeah, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought there. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, I think a lot of times it can just be fear. Like it's actually scary and really hard to ask these questions about what life do you want to live? And then also grapple with the question of, oh, I might be wrong. That's mm -hmm. actually pretty terrifying. Um, <laughs> and I, but for me, I think it actually makes the journey more fun because I'm sort of pushing the limits on what's possible for my life. Um, so that's sort of the upshot. And I totally resonate with what you're saying. I think a lot about matching environment with what I'm working on. So a big reason I wrote my book last year was I was in Taiwan. And Taiwan is just a, a slower place. It's 12 hours removed from a lot of the like chaos of the US media cycle and um, just a lot of people like texting me and stuff throughout the day. So I, I had like a slower, calmer pace and it was like writing fit perfectly with that because mm. I would like never have calls during the day. Um, and I could really just think deeply, wander, focus, um, and things like that. And I still think a lot about that. So talk, yeah, talk to me about writing, deciding to write a book. I know you've written for many years. You probably had some idea that you wanted to write a book, but why Global Natives and why now? Uh, so I guess I have to go back a few years to kind of tell the story of, of me writing yeah. a, a book because I was first approached by a, a literary agent in 2018 who was like, you should do a book on digital nomads. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, you know, I've been writing for a lot of years. I've kind of been writing since I was a teenager. Obviously, I do want to do a book. And I've always kind of thought in a far off way that I would do a book. But now there's someone actually saying, write a proposal. I want to sell your book. But that didn't really work out because the book that that agent thought that they could sell and the book that I think publishers were interested in at that time in 2018 was really like how to be a digital nomad, like a mm. kind of guide book, a kind of like self-helpy how-to. And I just didn't have a lot to say about that. 
Like, as in, like, yeah. I, I could have functionally written that book. Like, I had the kind of knowledge and experience. But when I actually thought about spending the time sitting down and, like, gathering thoughts on that, I was just like, oh, I just, it, it feels like agony. Like, even just <laughs> thinking about it, it doesn't feel like what I want to spend, the number of hours you have to spend to kind of create a manuscript. I don't want to do that. So I was very much like, okay, that's fine, Lauren. You're forgiven for this perspective. However, you should figure out what your actual book is. If you don't want to write this book, if you're having such a strong reaction to that idea, what is it that you want to write? Because otherwise writing a book is going to be this far off thing that you don't get to for like a decade because you're not kind of dedicating any time to figuring this out. Um, and so I kind of spent the next, I guess, couple of years thinking about it. And at the end of 2019, I left um, a very lucrative consulting contract that I had with a major tech company to work on the book full time um, and to kind of really figure it out because I found it super challenging to think about such a, an enormous project whilst also trying to hold down um, a not very time zone friendly kind of uh, day job. Um, that was taking up like a lot of time, kind of making me feel a bit burnt out, stressing me out. Um, and so, yeah, I figured that I needed some time to work on the book idea full time. Uh, and then in March 2020, uh, the pandemic hit. For me, the pandemic kind of hit a bit earlier because I was in Malaysia for like uh, December, I was in Jan, March. <laughs> yeah. And it was quite different in Asia because it was taken very, very seriously <laughs> for like three whole months before the rest of the world kind of caught up. Um, and so I would say that was quite a distraction. But at the same time, it also suddenly made... Uh, the area of digital nomads and remote work seem that much more kind of relevant to the mainstream conversation, I suppose. Um, and so somewhere in there, like between the end of 2019 um, and I'd say like maybe the like summer 2020, I really figured out like what I wanted the book to be. And what that turned out to be was kind of a, a big ideas book. Uh, this is what the kind of publishing industry calls uh, books of this nature, where it's kind of like you're looking at how the world works and being like, this sucks and here's how we could do it better. Like here are kind of like world changing ideas. Here's like the direction of travel to vastly kind of improve uh, how things are happening at the moment. And so Global Natives is kind of that. It's a book that is very much about nomads, it's also unabashedly like pro global mobility, people's like free movement yeah. around the world. But it really goes further than just kind of talking about the nomad lifestyle to really kind of put nomads in the context of what's happening in terms of globalization, in terms of technology and the internet, and in terms of kind of what we can do with this momentum that we have right now, now that remote work is mainstream, now that countries are launching new visas specifically for nomads and knowledge workers, um, and sort of tries to chart a path to that. Uh, and as I think I already mentioned, um, what I've been able to do since uh, finishing the book is actually begin to work on bringing some of those ideas to life, which has been possibly the most rewarding part of the whole process to have the articulation of ideas, which I think is a huge challenge and a hugely like rewarding thing to do in itself. But then even to have like that kind of next step to start uh, translating that into impact. And I guess to have the strength of ideas that you feel like you can go forward with, um, I think was really rewarding. I am um, I'm very glad I didn't write a book in 2018 because I think that that book would be quite irrelevant by 2022. 
Yeah, 2020 changed so much. I think, I mean, people showing up and having the conversation with me about their relationship with work gave me the confidence that what I was writing about was real. Um, before I had some doubts, I kind of thought, I, oh, maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> um, and it sort of revealed all these hidden preferences. And I think with living in different locations, I saw this with a lot of people that had I had a couple of friends that were in like one location for a very long time, very like fixed mindset. And then the pandemic happened and like, boom, they started making like, they either became nomadic or like moved to different places, like almost immediately. So it sort of showed there were all these preferences people had that they weren't willing to express. And there was this social shame aspect of that, or not even shame, but like, here's the right way you're supposed to be living your life. And yeah, we're shifting from an industrial to a digital age. And I find it funny sometimes when people are like, should we be in the office or not? It's like, that's over. Like everyone's working from a computer. It doesn't matter if they're in an office building or not. They're digital, they're interconnected. Um, they can work from wherever and smart companies will hire smart people anywhere in the world. Um, so I, lo I loved how you took a stance on that and were like, this is happening. <laughs> um, we need to grapple with the actual questions that come after we decide that it's happening. Um, and I think it, it's going to be a helpful book for uh, people to think about this. I hope so. And I think that this, um, this sort of discussion of returning to the office is just so much wasted energy at the moment. It's like just, I really... I, we, I don't even want to talk about it here. It's not, it's like a fake debate, right? It's, <laughs> it's <maybe>. like, <laughs> yeah, you can go. If, if what's, what's your perspective on it? <laughs> so I was just going to say that I suppose I just want to throw one solution into the mix. Yeah. Um, awesome. I don't even solution journalism. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically I just, I really want us to skip to the part where we stop talking about whether we're going to return to the office and instead start yeah. talking about, wasn't it strange that we used to measure <laughs> productivity as the hours someone showed up instead of the output of the work that they did? Like, I'm like, how long will it take? Is it going to take a year or two years for the like narratives to kind of reach that level? Um, I just think, yeah, remote is here to stay. And we probably don't need to convince your, uh, your listeners or each other of that. Well, I, I think the part that interests me is wh why do people think like that, right? It's not that they think showing up in an, most people would accept that showing up in an office is not like productivity. Like that is not what creates output. But I think there is this broader, um, idea of work. Work serves many needs. Work serves how we contribute to society, how we prove that we're like a morally good person. It's how we judge others. Um, it's how we value ourselves. So we have all these like deep ideas around work. Um, and when suddenly someone's working 20 hours per week, but doing a great job, it triggers this like bad person radar. <laughs> It's like this, this person, no good. And like, people don't really understand like why that's being triggered. It's like hundreds of years of like conditioning and our economic system. Um, but like, I, I do think we're at the beginning of like small seeds. Like you're writing other people's, like, I think Anna Codrea's 
writing is amazing. Um, and it, it's planting those seeds of saying like, okay, this is not the question that matters. Here are the questions that matters. And here's how we think about the future. Totally. I think asking better questions is um, a sort of shortcut that uh, people are not necessarily paying enough attention to in so many of these debates. Yeah. So the, would you say the question is like, am I um, working correctly in a place or not? Or is a better question like, am I a nomad or a settler? Like, I, I love that question you asked at the end of your book. Is that a good question to kind of think about? The broader issues? I guess so. Like, I make the distinction between nomads and settlers for this kind of reason that I think already came up in our conversation, which is um, people assuming that if you're a digital nomad, your kind of like take on everything is like, everyone should be nomads and like there can be no right. settlers there can be nobody who's like I was born in this town and I will stay here till I die like not at all um I think my perspective is so much more about the freedom to choose and I think that when it comes to when it comes to like location I think that it's such a difficult thing to generalize about because everyone is so different and everyone prioritizes different things in their life uh, and in their kind of like immediate physical environment. I think when it comes to work, there are so many questions uh, that we need to be asking. Um, and like, I guess maybe the, I'd, I'd say it's two sides. One is like, questions of like what do you literally like what makes a good company in a remote economy like as in what kind of company is going to have a good work culture or kind of like tick your boxes because I think that's so different now if you take remote as like um the baseline the kind of starting point there's so many new things to kind of think about here. Like for me, for example, when I uh, when I joined the Safety Wing team, which was uh, this December just gone, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about was literally like, I need to understand like what their software stack is because if they use like Cisco WebEx or like Microsoft Teams, <laughs> yeah, like, and it sounds so princess. Like my husband would probably say, you're being a princess about this. But it's like, but the tools that you use and the way that you use them is work culture in a kind of right. remote and async company. So I think like things like this, really getting down into the details and not worrying about offending a company that you are interviewing to join, I think is something that everybody should be doing as we kind of see this great resignation, kind of people shifting jobs. But then I think there are kind of larger questions about work as well. Like, you know, is it... I mean, I, I think I kind of know the answer to this question uh, already in my mind, but like the idea that we used to work for 40 hours per week and that that was what was required in order to create enough output to sort of earn your salary. I think that is being so turned on its head by remote. And like as uh, within business, we should really be kind of looking at that closely and we should be thinking about uh, how we want to understand the parameters of work going forward and like what does it mean to be a competitive company uh, in this environment in terms of how you actually work with your employees and how you actually understand the value that they are creating and that's easier for some roles than others but just in general this kind of move I think from time to output um, 
I worry it's going to take a really long time. But I also think that we're going to see a lot of more traditional companies really kind of uh, having to step up and compete with startups and sort of more pure tech players uh, in order to to be able to just kind of keep their market and stay competitive. Um, Because once you have like a lot of companies offering much more sort of seamless, like friction-free working relationships, then you do just see talent kind of flocking to those companies. Um, But hopefully it's going to kind of pull up the rest along the way, make a bit of a faster transition culturally. I think it's raised the stakes on people navigating their careers. Whereas before you sort of knew what you were getting with the company. Okay, I'm sort of expected to be in an office 40 hours a week. I don't really need to ask the questions about culture. You have experience working on your own and figuring out all these different things. So you're very attuned to like your energy levels, how you want to work, like what enables you to thrive, what enables you to be creative. So you're asking those questions about the tech stack makes perfect sense to me. And I think I've talked to people navigating traditional careers and it's actually very hard, right? Because if you're a company that's working like three days a week in office and then you're interviewing at a company that's five days a week in office, that's a completely different way of orienting your life. So you're not just like moving from one job to another anymore. You're like having to figure out all these trade-offs. And this is part of the argument I was trying to write in my book, which is that like we're all on a pathless path right now. (laughs) And it's like going to be beneficial to start figuring out what are some of the trade-offs at the margins and like how to figure out all these different settings. Because every company has like a different setting now. And I'm sure it'll emerge like maybe there'll be like four types of companies or something, three types, whatever. Um, But right now there's like 25 varieties and it's very um, hard to navigate. How have you in your journey of like working remotely gotten to the point where you knew to ask those questions? Oh God, I think the longer that you work for yourself, the more fussy you become because you're just kind of like looking at every opportunity and being like, eh, there'll be like more opportunities. Like, is this opportunity like good enough for me to not just sit in my pants all day instead? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. what are you optimizing for? Is it energy? Is it creativity? Is it like uh, mission? What do you, how do you think about like trade-offs? Because I know for a a lot of nomads and freelancers, remote workers, a lot of what makes them unique is they're not optimizing around max money consistently going up to the right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there are two main things that I've kind of optimized around and not through my whole career because it's really lessons from earlier career that have informed latter career, I think. Um, But it's really important to me to be part of a team, uh, whatever format that takes, where there are not significant bottlenecks to getting good work done. Like that's something that, yeah, I mean, it sounds really basic, but like uh, in my experience, kind of uh, consulting for clients before, both in government and private sector, especially the bigger the organization, the kind of worse those bottlenecks can be. One of the things that I found really killer in the past at past companies um, was like running creative teams wherein there were so many bottlenecks that nothing that was made ever got released to the public. And I just think that's like soul destroying for everybody involved and is a surefire way to make you feel like you're in a bullshit job, even if the job itself 
otherwise is is very very good so definitely bottlenecks is a really really big one I think for me as well mission has played a really big part much more recently than uh, sort of earlier in my career, I think. So the decision to join Safety Wing was really based on wanting to uh, sort of pursue this mission of a nomad internet country and to really kind of pursue world-changing ideas. And it was a very kind of long, I guess, interview process, all fully remote. And I remember saying to my husband the week before I started, I was like, you do know I'm prepared to be in and out in a week uh, like a, a week or a month, like if I don't think that this is going to work. Um, and as much as impact and mission are important, and I was very, it was very clear to me that I was aligned with Safety Wing on those things, I was also prepared for it to just be a terrible experience that like having been sort of a freelancer and worked independently for so many years that I was just going to kind of go in here, into this company and just be like, oh God, no, like get me out of here. Um, but that's not how it worked out. And I guess maybe one of my reflections or takeaways on that is um, how important it can be to kind of take risks sometimes. You know, I could have very easily, I think, talked myself out of ever giving it a try. And instead, I, I guess I took that approach of like, OK, what is there to lose here? Essentially a month or two, like uh, if, if this doesn't work out. I guess maybe that's a really good guidance point for any career, I think, is trying to assess things in terms of what is the worst thing that could happen like as in really realistically trying to go through the steps of like what it is that's making you feel uncomfortable about something and I think that's something that I have been able to I guess a, a skill that I've been able to hone in myself which I, I see as like very very valuable uh, in navigating these kind of opportunities uh, in the remote world. In terms of writing the book so I'd love to hear just more about how you thought about it at the beginning you were a huge help to me. We had like one call about writing the book. I think I was about four to five months in and you gave me, you, you did an edit on my like introduction, which was like very challenging and very intense. And like, I loved it. It was so good because it pushed me and it was like, oh, I can like write a great book. Like it made me want to get better. And you also gave me a bunch of different ideas of like thinking about writing, which was super helpful because like I was just like an internet words person and you actually have like real training and <laughs> experience of how to, how to write things for audiences. Um, how did you think about your book? I know you wrote it with Holloway, which, so it was a bit unique. Um, so yeah, how, what was your concept? Did you try to sell it to a publisher first or did you just start writing it? Um, so I had some early interest uh, in Global Natives from um, Penguin uh, in the UK. And so I, I thought quite carefully about whether to go down that more traditional publishing route and ultimately decided, bearing in mind this was like decision making in 2020 when things, yeah. you know, we had no vaccine. It was all very unclear, <laughs> like where the world was going, whether the apocalypse had begun. Um, but I basically decided that a traditional publisher was not going to cut it in terms of the timeline. Um, so They're when so you, long, why are they so long? Uh, it's just so many different cogs in a process, but essentially yeah. like for any listeners who don't know what happens when you write a book with a traditional publisher is you spend like nine to 18 months, depending on whether you're a new writer and stuff, actually writing the book, um, with, uh, an editor from the publisher and then 
12 to 18 months after you finish the manuscript, the book itself kind of comes out and is distributed to bookshops and is reviewed and such. And at the time, I was just like, you know, this was a, this would have been like summer 2020. And so it was like, it had been one month since Barbados launched a nomad visa and suddenly there were 10 to 20 more countries uh, kind of following in their footsteps. I just had no idea how I could conceive of a book and kind of write about this area if I knew that basically it was going to be two years later when it came out. Um, and so I started to kind of explore alternative options because something I was really sure about was that I didn't want to self-publish because I really wanted an editor on the project and I basically didn't want to kind of go into my own pockets, kind of like uh, put my own savings into uh, sort of hiring an editor. Um, and so I got some kind of introduction to Holloway from somebody else and met my editor, Rachel Jepson. She was actually the first person who uh, I met from the Holloway team. And she and I just gelled so much. I remember having a couple of calls with Rachel and coming away from it like, I just want this woman to work on my book. Like, as in, I just, I want to see like what we can do together because we had really, really great chemistry. Um, and so I started, I mean, I already had a lot of research, a lot of notes because I kind of been thinking about the book for a while. Um, but when I, so I got the, the book deal with Holloway in December, 2020. And uh, Rachel and I started working together in like Jan, 2021. And um, basically she helped me move from like masses of research and all these kind of mini essays and ideas about things into conceptualizing what the actual book was going to look like and kind of what the, the kind of core arguments would be. Um, and so, yeah, we spent uh, a sort of year working together on that. And I found this process of writing and being edited, um, perhaps the most like import important and joyful, I would say, part of the whole process, because I was able to really, really sharpen my thinking and really, really kind of level up, I suppose, for possibly the first time since I actually did um, creative writing in grad school, just because of the wow, intensity of that relationship and going back and forth and kind of having someone who's a sort of steward or guardian of your ideas. I think there must have been 10 or 20 times during the process that Rachel turned to me and was like, I need to like just direct you back to your own vision for this book. What you told me, and she'd like look back in her notes, she'd say, what you told me in March was this. So can we like talk about that and kind of work through it? Like really keeping me true to my own ideas. Um, so yeah. Um, and Holloway is like, uh, I've realized I should say something about kind of like Holloway and what makes it unique. But Holloway is um, an independent publisher and also a digital publisher. So there's something between a tech company and kind of an independent publisher. Um, and so what that meant is that I was still making edits to my book at a week or two before it was actually released um, in early May. And that was like the level of flexibility, I suppose, that I was looking for in terms of finishing manuscript and then shipping, wanting to make sure that like there were, if there were extra things to slide in, uh, that that could be done right up to the last minute. Um, and now... It is shared with the world uh, via the Holloway platform. Um, and actually, a piece has just run. I mean, there are pieces of it everywhere as well. Yeah. <laughs> Featuring everywhere on the internet. What makes a good editor for you? Uh, I think it's hard to generalize. It's a bit like asking what makes a good friend for you. And maybe there's yeah. like an answer to that question. Uh, you know, well, like maybe for you, what, what made Rachel 
great for you? I think she got the the concept for the book as well as what I didn't want the book to be. Uh, and yeah. really engaged with that from the start. I think one of our early conversations was like, so essentially you want to write a political manifesto, but in the disguise of a business book, yeah? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do. And she's like, excellent, let's do that. Um, but yeah, I think just really being able to have a shared vision with an editor of like what a book is going to be, having someone who really is committed to the ideas. And, you know, one of the huge benefits of Rachel, aside from her actual skill with like the craft of writing and the craft of editing as well, is that she has a really varied background in writing about technology. And I think that was important. You know, I think if I'd written a book with an editor who was um, a sort of travel writing specialist, the book would have come out very differently and sort of been guided in a different direction. But I took, uh, I took a lot of lessons from, I think, Rachel's previous experience editing a wide variety of like internet makers. Um, and she was in sort of trade publishing before that to really be able to, um, kind of take, uh, take everything that I was writing about in a slightly broader context than if it was just me kind of in my own head uh, without that kind of uh, extra knowledge and sort of extra work that Rachel brought to the table. Awesome. Great stuff, Rachel. Shout out to Rachel Jepson at uh, Holloway. The, what are the most interesting experiments happening right now with countries or policies? I, I see new stuff every month now. It's really interesting. Yeah, so I mean, the the avalanche of nomad visas, shall we say, continues. Yeah, uh, and some of them are just like repackaged, like extended tourist ones. Other ones are really interesting, though. Yeah, so I mean, that's a trend that's really picking up steam. I think that a lot of nomad visas have this fundamental problem, which is that they're trying to optimize people's relationship as residency. So as in actually moving more expat style to a place for a while yeah. than what digital nomads actually want, which is mobility and flexibility. Like the ability to spend three months per year in a place for five years is I think much more appealing to most nomads than the idea of being able to do a full 12 months somewhere and then keep extending and extending. Um, so yeah, super kind of interesting landscape with a lot of the visas. I think that um, one of the things that I'm most interested in uh, and that I'm working on quite actively at Plumier at the moment is trying to bring about some international standards in that area and trying to make it a bit more like user focused, uh, like make sure the visa programs essentially are more user focused um, and are able to sort of deliver benefits for all stakeholders involved because at the moment you have a lot of programs that have kind of launched um, which had never spoke to any nomads before they actually made them, uh, made their kind of visa um, and actually aren't kind of sure of what it is that they're trying to achieve for like maybe their local economy or something like that. So yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do there, but all of the Nomad Visa programs are really interesting. And I'm really interested to kind of see, I guess, the next, the, the kind of Nomad Visas 2.0 um, as a, the space kind of settles down and perhaps Nomad Visas become a bit more like tourist visas in that sense of being very easy to access and kind of visa on arrival, etc. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think... Um, Something I find really, really interesting and in true nomad style of self-experimentation, uh, I, in fact, 
did this for a year and a half, but um, I have a chapter in the book that's about borderless living and specifically subscription living. So the idea of hotels and accommodation providers adopting this model that's much more nomad facing, which is basically by the month accommodation. The vision being that in the future, instead of paying rent uh, on a long-term contract of let's say 12 months to one landlord in one city, you're instead paying that same kind of amount to a global brand and then you're able to access kind of flexible living spaces like apartments, co-working spaces, etc. around the world. And so that, that was something that I did along with my husband um, for a year and a half during the pandemic. We sort of tested oh, out wow. one of these nomad hotels. Um, Selena or something? No, Zoku. So um, oh, okay. Zoku have four locations. Amsterdam, Vienna, Copenhagen, and Paris. Um, and we were mainly based at the Amsterdam location, um, but spent some time in some of the other properties as well. But essentially, it's like, it's a hotel with apartments, like mini apartments that right. are super space saving uh, and very beautifully designed. Um, in the nor- They're the kind of same size as a normal hotel room. And then on site, you have a co-working space and kind of a bar, restaurant, cafe. And so it's like if you're a nomad, if you're a remote worker, you kind of have those two components that you really want some consistency with, uh, i.e. your actual living space and your co-working space uh, when you travel. Um, And so, yeah, uh, that was a super sort of interesting experience and something that I'm really excited to kind of watch roll out. Real estate is notoriously slow to kind of like change things, much like governments. But um, I think that we're going to see a lot more in that space. Uh, If you're a geek like I am and read the kind of real real estate investor news, you can kind of see things uh, going in this direction already. I always find out about it in your newsletter. There's, there's always like one cool thing where I'm like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Um, <laughs> Taiwan has been really interesting to watch, I think. I actually got the gold card visa in 2019. And when they started it, it was you needed eight years work experience, <laughs> right? And you could tell it was like created by a committee, like, oh, we need to make sure they have their proper qualifications and very East Asian. Um, But over time, the qualifications have gotten less and less where they're and they're making more of the rules ambiguous. Like you don't have to have a job anymore. And you also don't have to be employed when you're in Taiwan, which is like saying without saying, hey, you can be a digital nomad here. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have done that. Um, And. The reason I think East Asia is so interesting to watch is because they literally have shrinking populations. So they are totally, and like Portugal is in a similar situation, um, being very proactive. Um, And I think you're gonna see a lot more countries that are like, oh wow, we have shrinking populations. We actually just need to experience, we need to get anyone here and then figure it out. Mm, Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that um, looking at some of the remote incentives that have launched around the world, um, particularly the ones that are like, I think it's Italy, Greece, maybe Spain as well, where they will literally pay remote workers to to go to small villages uh, where most of the population has has kind of moved away and rejuvenate those spaces. I'm very excited to kind of see 
see what happens with some of those experiments. Um, and I guess this is a little bit what I was saying before about, I think there's such an opportunity to try and create win-wins um, for different stakeholders involved. So let's say a bunch of nomads go and rejuvenate a town or village in Italy, and they're able to kind of set up a bit of a digital nomad village there. I think that's really great because it's kind of rejuvenating an area, which is good for the local economy, which is good for local people at the same time as making sure that nomads are contributing positively rather than, for example, making urban city centres even more expensive and difficult to find accommodation in. Um, So I think it's so much about incentives. Like governments need to decide what they want. Nomads need to express what they want. uh, And then we can kind of find the the different ways in which we can essentially use technology to be able to um, create win-wins. Yeah. And I think real estate is one of the biggest challenges in the world right now. We have this sort of disconnect. McKinsey had this report of global wealth and a lot of wealth um, creation in the last 30 years has basically come from real estate gains, which is like often non-productive assets. Um, So it's sort of creating this asset bubble um, and creating these weird incentives to try and make housing more scarce. I think in nomad communities from what I've seen abroad, the way locals deal with this is there's basically two economies. Like if you're a local, you can get cheaper rent. Um, And then if it's an outsider, you jack up the rent. And that way, like you're not actually in a market. I think the challenges will come when if these companies, they're trying to make money and they are competing in a global market and participating local, like how... um, those dynamics play out and like how it drives local rents as well is going to be interesting. But yeah, I mean, real, real estate is such a big challenge right now. I mean, rents are going up right now in Austin, 20 to 30% year over year, which is just unbelievable. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know how this happens, but I think for a lot of people too, that's what's driving the move to like, want to do this subscription living. It's like you can basically outsource the risk of like inflation and cost changes to another company to figure out. And then if they're not good, maybe you go to a different one, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Any other thoughts on like real estate? It sounds like you're a little deeper than I am in this stuff. Um, I know that we said that this conversation wasn't going to focus on safety wing and plumia, but if you want to go in the real estate direction, um, yeah, yeah, let's do it. At Safety Wing right now, um, we're looking at a couple of options. And one option is, and I think we will see more remote companies like make these ridiculous moves. Uh, but we're looking at buying a European castle right now as our kind of uh, headquarters uh, for the company. Uh, and essentially, yeah, I do think we'll see a lot more remote companies kind of uh, thinking much more creatively about real estate going forward. Um, and this kind of comes out of the nature of having a remote company, meaning that you go on sort of team retreats or team gatherings several times per year. Um, and so that's kind of our rationale at Safety Wing right now is, OK, we're already spending a lot of money on these kind of gatherings and team retreats. We're growing super fast. So does it actually make sense to have real estate assets uh, which could kind of take care of some of that spend that we're already doing. Um, so watch this space, but there may be a safety wing slash plumia castle to come visit us at sometime. <laughs> Shout out um, to safety wing. They've uh, sponsored a couple of my newsletters. So <laughs> um, the, yeah, it, 
Well, that's another interesting dynamic is, and I don't think this has been fully realized. I've seen it with some companies. The stakes to in-person events become a lot more important and um, something you're willing to invest a lot more in when you're working remotely. Because mm-hmm. the purpose of those in-person gatherings is so much more meaningful and transformative in terms of like what you're trying to do. Um, a lot of people mistake remote work for never meeting other people. That's pandemic remote. Hopefully we're done with pandemic remote. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and it will lead to these really interesting decisions like companies buying real estate in these offsite locations. And I think that will be a huge trend. Mm. And we're at the helm of it. There's Salesforce and their ranch and possibly Safety Wing in our castle. So <laughs> I <laughs> what, love it. I w- <laughs> subscribe to my newsletter listeners and I'll tell you about all the other weird properties that uh, companies are buying up. <laughs> awesome. Um, so wanted to do a few uh, rapid fire questions. Are you game? All right. <laughs> um, who is a path role model um, you've had in your life? Uh, Pia Mancini, um, who is CEO of Open Collective. Uh, and I first learned about her work uh, when she did a TED Talk, I want to say in like 2014 or 2015. Um, I then became friends with her, which was really wild. But what I love about Pia is that she's working on her mission and then plugs things into that rather than kind of following opportunities in order to shape her mission. And getting to know Pia, I really... Um, I think was able to take away a lot of what I admired about her and convert that into more like what I wanted my path to look like. Favorite nomad location uh, you've been to? I always feel like I want to lie in response to this question because I don't want others to know about the good spots and make them too crowded. But um, I'm a really big fan of Malaysia. So I love Kuala Lumpur um, and also the island of Penang. Really, really great places to spend time as a nomad. Awesome. What is the favorite thing you've ever written? Uh, so I have this essay, which I actually think I shared with you um, before before this session, called Minimum, Minimum Viable State. You can find it on my website, which is lraz.io. But this was like, uh, this was an essay about the kind of plumier concept of building a country on the internet. And it's about 4,000 words, I think. And it really just poured out of me. Um, I really just had something to say and I had to figure it out by writing it down. So I was super proud of that piece of work. And then it was selected. I like submitted it for like a crypto essay prize that Balaji Srinivasan was doing and it won. Um, so I got sent some Bitcoin in exchange for that essay. And it was kind of, I guess, one of my first, can I call it this, but like web three interactions, right? Where it's like, oh, I can just make a thing and then I can get a crypto bounty for it, which I thought was very cool and made me very proud to, uh, I guess, get some recognition from uh, from the cutting edge of tech. What's a book, podcast, YouTube video, any sort of media that has had a big impact on you in the past six months? So I've been rereading a lot of Joan Didion lately because she passed away. Oh, she's so good. So good. Wait, she, like, oh, she, she, she passed away. I didn't know this. Yeah, last year, I think. Very sad. Oh, wow. That sucks. Super sad. But she also had a good run. I think she was in her 90s. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think that um, in particular, um, Slouching Towards Bethlehem 
um, is a really, really great book uh, that I think I'll just revisit for the rest of my life. But I think that was very, very impactful for me coming out of book one and starting to think about book two. Like, what is my next book going to be? What do I want to try and achieve through the craft of writing through the creation of, a, of the next book? Uh, and for me, it just meant going back to Joan Didion because she's been kind of one of these like quality markers in how I would like to one day write. Yeah, her writing is beautiful. The, I read The Year of Magical Thinking last year and it was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, 10 years from now, what do what are global natives doing? If you want to make a bold prediction. Uh, I think they're probably, um, subscribing to Plumia to get their nomad passport. Um, we are, we are slated like on our 10 year roadmap to launch a new passport for digital nomads in 2032. So literally in a decade's time, I hope to have created this and to perhaps be back on your podcast being like, are you going to apply for one pool? <laughs> Look at what I made. I'll probably be in the beta. Um, <laughs> but yeah, amazing. Uh, where can people find more? I'll link up to counterflows, your newsletter and your Twitter, but where else do you want to direct people or point people? Uh, so my website lraz, L-R-A-Z dot I-O is kind of my hub for everything. I recently moved my newsletter from Substack there as well. So it's a much easier URL to remember, I think. Um, but you can find out all about me and my work there. And I do really like to tweet. So if you want to talk about any of the ideas from our podcast episode today, definitely hit me up on there. Amazing. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, and thanks for coming on the Path is Path. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.